Hey there, listeners. Big news. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. It's an exciting community of all things romance, romance related, which includes shows that feature book club style discussions, author interviews, comedies, critiques, fantastic conversations, all circulating, orbiting, shall we say, snuggling up to romance fiction of any and all flavors. We're really excited to be part of this exciting community, and we hope that you'll check it out, subscribe, find new new favorites at frolic.media backslash podcasts but don't forget about us hi i'm isabeau we should do our names as anagrams of our actual i'm nagrom Obisa. Oh. I thought it sounded like Ibiza. Mm, no, it, it didn't. Did not. It did not at all. So Thanks so- for putting that out there. <laughs> I'm awesome. so sorry. Just what I needed going into the carb season. <laughs> Obisa. <laughs> oh. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About... Vampires about hunchbacks about oopies about fancy schlosses about stolen glances about raiding tombs of old chateaus about anagrams about decapitating beautiful dead bodies <laughs> About the person who originates the idea, but it's not as popular as the one that gets famous. It's about ladies. It's about ladies. <laughs> but most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This year, Isbo and I. This year. Jesus. 2019. Every week is a year. <laughs> It's so true. (laughs) Make it stop, Mom. Make it stop. I am now 346. Mm. Not unlike one of our heroines. (laughs) I'm still as beautiful and vibrant as ever. Even though you're just saying that because you can see my bra strap right now. (laughs) True story. I'm feeling both ardent and repulsed at the same time. (laughs) Okay, so this is Carmilla. By Joseph Sheridan Lafanu. He's Irish. Lafanu is Irish? Joseph Sheridan Lafanu is Irish. Well, tickle my elbow and tell me another. Do you know what happened? No. Oh my God. Am I going to be upset? Yeah. Oh no. Welcome to <laughs> Anti England. <laughs> Never let him forget. A lot of people with Irish last names in their own country were forced to change their last name. I think it's bullshit. Anybody was forced to change their last name. It does feel especially egregious. So that might be how this happened. Or he might be French. They were forced to anglicize their uh, last names. Or Frenchicize, because that's the fancy version of being British after the Norman invasion. Yeah, it's true. That's so weird. Yeah, isn't that weird? Names in England are stupid. Europe is strange, and I don't think we should look up to it. Agreed. Hard agree. <laughs> Anyways, Carmilla. It's too old and in the cultural memory too insignificant to have a pithy back of the jacket plot summary. Lady vampires who are teens. Teen Lady Vampire. Okay. It's quite a con, frankly. I loved the twists and turns of this Baroque novella that seemed interminable. Let's do a plot summary. So I'll start. I'll chime in. In the beginning, (laughs) there's this like... Good biblical joke. Introduction. (laughs) The first part. The first part is some notes. Like whenever people put notes to their academic evidence and they're like, this is from this place. Mm -hmm. You behold the next peculiar account of events. And then it goes into what I think are presumably like an epistle, but to your therapist. Totally. She's definitely writing to her therapist. Yes. And she's explaining the 
this event that happened in her adolescence that has led her to an anxiety disorder. I kind of chuckled there because it is so strange to think about like pre-Drac, a book that's concerned with a woman self-identifying an anxiety disorder and writing to her therapist Mm -hmm. or her doctor. I'm not sure how it worked. I actually have very little background on the history of mental health. I guess Freud was a medical doctor. Yeah, he's a medical doctor, but she's upper class, so she's seeing her doctor or specialist in the Italian Alps. Yeah, so this is like an accounting for his sake. Right. And she's reflecting on her childhood, which was spent in a place called Styria. Mm -hmm. So it's like Hungary-ish. Yeah, or Austria. It's Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And she talks about the fact that her family's nobility, but they're not particularly wealthy. Mm -hmm. And their money can go just an awful long way. (laughs) And they live in a schloss. And she's like, I know that sounds fancy. It only has 25 rooms. On the first floor. Yeah, she's like, they're actually not that cool. I wish I knew what Joseph Sheridan Lafanu's deal was and like what his socioeconomic status was because Aspiring it's inspiring Regina George. His encapsulation of the well to do young woman's voice. Mm-hmm. It's like almost so good that it borders on satire. Yeah. Anyway, so she's talking about living in Styria with her dad. Her mom's gone. She's got a regular old governess and she's also got a finishing governess but her Mm -hmm. finishing governess doesn't speak English Mm -hmm. and she speaks French very poorly Mm -hmm. and so it's kind of like why is this finishing governess here probably because she finishes the dad yeah it was definitely my read of that as well she's pretty lonely she's 19 and she's excited to meet this daughter type figure of a general who has like the next closest schloss Which is like 25 of your British leagues away. Yeah, exactly. And so she is talking to a British person. So I actually have a lot to say about who these epistles are addressing. Then we'll save it. Okay. (laughs) We got to get through the summary. Yeah, let's get through this. So she's excited for this general's daughter to come and visit her. She's like, oh, she just wants like a friend. And then her dad gets this letter from the general that's like off the wall, like stream of consciousness. Like, you cannot believe the aliens that exist in this world and I will be gone for three months to chase them. Because they've taken my daughter in the bloom of her innocence. Yeah. So when you read this letter... It sounds like the ward slash daughter figure has had an untoward sexual relationship with a young man and then has like miscarried and died. Well, I couldn't tell if she was like actually dead or if she had been kidnapped because he's like, we can't even see her. We can't even find her. But also I had some issues, (laughs) 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 which we'll touch on. But anyways, so they get this crazy letter and they're like, wow. And then all of a sudden this like beautiful carriage comes up and this woman gets out and she lays her teen daughter on a grassy bank and she's like I'm very important and very famous and I have very famous secret stuff to do will you please take my daughter for three months well he offers yeah he does he's like I'll be an honor to take your daughter for three months nobody thinks this is weird no so she comes and lives with them and this beautiful teen this beautiful teen comes and lives with them and begins this really intense female friendship Mm -hmm. with our narrator who also talks about feeling like as you said at one like repelled and ardently attracted to yeah kind of ardently attracted to being ardently attracted to almost Mm -hmm. anyways so spooky stuff starts happening she has this memory of seeing the teen who has come to live with them the titular Carmilla Mm -hmm. previously when she was very small she like woke up from a And then at the foot of the bed, she sees this face crouching. And she said she had never encountered the idea of fear. So she doesn't know to Mm -hmm. feel fear. She's just like, oh, this is strange. Mm -hmm. And the girl slips her hands up between her covers and touches her legs. And then scurries up and crouches beneath her blankets and then slides up. Our narrator, as a very small child, thinks this is very funny. And the beautiful girl holds her to her breast. And then suddenly she feels two needles going into her chest Mm -hmm. and then she woke up screaming and so Carmilla says oh my god I had the same weird dream about you how weird that we should meet now in real life yeah crazy 
crazy, it right? Be anyone but you. Yeah. And so they start this kind of weirdly obsessive friendship. Guess what? Carmela's a vampire. Ba, ba, ba. She starts killing girls in the closest village, which is actually really far away because the closest village is an abandoned ghost village. Right. A ruined village that belonged to the Karnsteins. The Karnsteins. Karsteins. And then Carmela flips away, starts getting really weird and acting more and more erratic. Then our dude shows up, general, and he's like, let me tell you about this girl, Miracala. Right. Who I think killed my daughter, who wasn't really my daughter, but just a teen girl I took into my life. And I was like, lived with me and I cry over her every night. Yeah, yeah. It was weird. And then (laughs) they end up getting like a Van Helsing type to show up and chop off her head. Which was great. He's just like the woodsman. No, the woodsman is a second character. That's right. And then there's like the weird priestly figure who's like a hot but not Rasputin, but like for good. I'm glad that your imagination was able to flesh out those characters so much because I was like the priest who just like happened to be there. Yeah, because he'd been living like waiting. And then the whole story is like effed up. And then like the origin story of how vampires came to be is also effed up. I don't understand. I still don't understand how it worked. I read it like three times. Well, it said suicides under certain conditions, but she wasn't the suicide. One of her lovers was the suicide. And then he haunted her and made her into the vampire. Right. It's just like a fucking lot. Anyway, so that's what happens. They behead Carmela. So like technically and our heroine ends up deranged, air quotes, writing a letter to her therapist. So it's not a happily ever after. This is not a romance novel. Mm -mm. But why did we choose it? I think we should defend ourselves. There were some sexy bits between ladies. (laughs) We didn't know that when we picked it up. We did know that it had lesbian overtones. Mm -hmm. Well, undertones, but they're overtones. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad that you said that because I think like other people describe it as undertones and I'm like, these are straight up major chords. This is the story. Yeah. The story is their (laughs) weird friendship and like this like attraction, non-attraction, super attraction. This is heavenly creatures. Yes. Anyways, so we chose it because we wanted to read something spooky for Halloween, obviously. Uh, And like whenever you look up horror romance, like there was one I was really interested in that was based around the Dahmer party. And I was like, has enough time passed? But then I saw like the author had written a disclaimer about like racist language was normal back then. Oh God. And I was like, okay, well, I don't want to do that. And um, we thought about doing Nine Coaches Waiting, but it was too long. Yep. And so Carmilla came up. A gothic novel was something I really wanted to read because I liked them, but also it's a really important part of romance history. Mm-hmm. Most early romances, pre-Kathleen Widowis, were gothic stories. Like Jane Eyre of all of that literature became kind of the prototype. And there are a bunch of them. I mean, like Rebecca. But like, that's also one of the things that was striking to me about who this epistle was for. So ostensibly it's for the therapist, but at times our heroine, who's Laura, which we don't learn until halfway through because no one refers to her by name. She goes, in some respects, her habits were odd, perhaps not so singular in the opinion of a town lady like you, direct address to audience, as they appeared to us rustics. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like she does this a couple of times because the story is actually quite gripping. I forgot that we were in first person sometimes because it, the language is so baroque. And so then the director addressed to me where it's like not just a 19 year old girl, but also a 19 year old girl who thinks of herself in a very particular way as like rural versus urban and like wanting a particular kind of like coolness and like, hey, I know that you might be cooler than me, but like I'm cool in all these ways. It was like it was amazing and reminded me again why gothic novels were so important for women. Like she's addressing a woman specifically. Yeah. And there's also the interesting conversation. It kind of centers a perspective that is less common in literature at this time. Also, just by virtue of her being like, I guess technically I'm English like you, but I don't like relate to that, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, there's all this like weird stuff in her background. Like Mm -hmm. she kind of has a strange way of coming into the world because there's this like central indisputable strangeness mm-hmm. of the vampire or the upir uh, in the story. But there's also all of this like 
peripheral stuff. And it almost makes our storyteller like an unreliable narrator because she alludes to so many things and says like they're not important, even though they're like absolutely riveting thoughts. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that her mother was like a local gal and not like a well-to-do local gal, but like a peasant. And her father was some kind of nobility and now they're broke. Yeah. And that he also was like an ambassador, which is why he like fell in love with the place. And then it's not weird that he fell in love with a local girl, but like he is nobility and they keep bringing that up. Yeah. But then she inherits her mother's art collection and it's all of these like big deal paintings. Mm -hmm. This text is so much of its time because like she gets a painting and it looks exactly like Carmilla and it's like the Countess. Marcella. Marcella. There are like three versions of the name that all have the same letters. (laughs) Which we're told at the end is like a thing with vampires. (laughs) Because you have to invite them in by name maybe. That is what it was thinking. That's like part of the spell. But she gets this painting. She's like, it was just a little painting. It was just, you know, a foot and a half by a foot and a half. Didn't have a frame, but it was beautifully kept and the lady was amazing and it lit up on the features of this young teen goddess and I was like foot and a half by a foot and a half paintings like no little thing (laughs) pretty big big painting I like her general perspective on feeling drawn towards Carmilla and like really not owning that Mm -hmm. always being like I uh, just really I thought the painting was so beautiful my dad said this like weird embarrassing thing about like <laughs> oh I'd like the painting too because it's so pretty the subject is so pretty and he smiled at Mirakel and I was like dad you're embarrassing me just put it in my room yeah, and then it, it look over my bed every day yeah and then it becomes about Carmilla being like oh my god you want a painting of me in your room oh my god oh, you're obsessed and then she's like you're obsessed and I'm obsessed let me I'm smell obsessed. your hair let me hold Hold your head as we walk. Yeah. Let me pull you by the waist and like <laughs> nuzzle into your neck. Yeah. And it's like so sensual. Carmilla is She like goes so into trances sensual. sniffing her. Yeah. And like kissing her and she's like kissing my cheek and then kissing me more. And I was like kissing you more. There's this part in the book where Carmilla goes to great pains to explain why she locks her bedroom <laughs> from the inside <laughs> every night. And then one night the girl kind of spend some time talking to each other and then our narrator is leaving the room and Carmela's like I'm so tired I don't think I could even lock my door tonight <laughs> and our narrator is like I thought that was a pretty weird thing to point out I was like shut up <laughs> you know what that was about you know what that means ugh I loved all of that. And one of the things that I was so rooted in this perspective that when it's revealed that Carmilla doesn't come down until like later on in the afternoon, like at 4 p.m. when the sun's like behind the trees. Yeah. I was like, that doesn't seem that weird for a teen who's always in a languor. Yeah, exactly. Her beautiful languor. She had a languor, but she wore it well. Yeah, that's like the thesis of every paragraph about Carmilla. What's the title of that chapter? Like her... Her habits, a mm-hmm. saunter. <laughs> and the saunter is definitely like a masculine trait throughout the book. Whenever the Van Helsing type, the colonel or the general and her dad start looking for Carmilla in the church so that they can chop her head off, they're described as having like a saunter now mm-hmm. that they're all together in the same space. And also that poor woodsman who just keeps getting pulled out of the woods. And they're like, what do we do? What are the legends? We were we able to see the inscriptions because the woodsman came back and wiped off the dust is an actual thing that happens. <laughs> Thank God for the woodsman. Competent worker. He gets a chapter title, even though I would describe him as a very minor character. Barely an acquaintance character. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's just constantly pointing them in the right direction and not giving them direction. But we are a Romeo novel podcast, so I feel like we should talk about this as a romance novel. I think one of the things that really surprised me is how well it fell into the conventions, especially the discussion of attraction. So what conventions are you referring to? When you meet someone in a romance novel and all they want to do is like think about how awesome the other person is, but then they're like cataloging how weird it is that they're thinking about them. So like it's like that double think of I'm thinking about them, but it's weird that I'm thinking about them all the time. And this book is like, it reads like a romance novel. So at one point, Carmilla is 
is breathing quickly because she's just been like, I love you so much. And our narrator says, it was like the adder of a lover. It embarrassed me. It was hateful yet overpowering. And with gloating eyes, she drew me to her and her hot lips traveled along my cheek in kisses. And she whispered almost in sobs, you are mine. You shall be mine. And you and I are one forever. I'm like, I feel like I've read that in a romance novel before. I think the thing that most closely aligned with a romance novel for me, besides like the romantic idea of gothic, which is different from a romance, is the idea that this book kind of peddles in the fantasy of desirability Mm. and like someone being so obsessed with you. And also the idea of like a fate, Mm -hmm. even though it's not a fate, she was actually a vampire trying to suck her child blood. Yeah. Also like the entire con of how this vampire moves around, like she's hired like what is essentially an older human henchwoman. I initially thought I was like, oh, that's going to be her vampire maker. And it's not. No, it's like her henchman. And so then there's this ruse and she only attacks young women. And she like very specifically is moving through the sphere. And like the women that she attacks in the peasant town are all young and beautiful. And it's like she hires a human to like throw her onto the mercies of a nice family that also has a teen. Like what a weird con. So the peasant girls she eats they're usually dead within three days but the general's air quotes daughter and our main character they're kind of sustained by her for like a prolonged feeding okay so the end of the book is like here's a vampire and one of the things it focuses on like it's not very romance novel-y but it is so reflective of I just want to read it Mm -hmm. it's basically like dismissive of the fact that they can move through walls and stuff and then it says the vampire is prone to be fascinated with an engrossing vehemence resembling the passion of love by particular persons. In pursuit of these, it will exercise an exhaustible patience and stratagem, for access to a particular object may be obstructed in a hundred ways. It will never desist until it has satiated its passion and drained the very life of its coveted victim. But it will, in these cases, husband and protract its murderous enjoyment with the refinement of an epicure, and heighten it by gradual approaches of an artful courtship. In these cases, it seems to yearn for something like sympathy and consent. In ordinary ones, it goes direct to its object, overpowers with violence, and strangles and exhausts often at a single feast. This is a feminist text. Yes. It's very much descriptive of a power imbalance relationship. Yes. And like that particular scene for me, like this book read in large parts, like I saw scenes from the 1960s, 1970s Nosferatu. And there's... 1960s, 1970s Nosferatu? Yeah. The remake of the original silent German one. So the 60s, 70s, it's in color, but it's only in like three tones. And like they're all pale. And like then there's red. And in the last scene the young woman who's like trying to free the town slash her husband invites Nosferatu to consume her as daylight breaks and so Nosferatu the vampire sees that the sun is rising turns away like he's gonna get away she pulls him back in in this sympathy and consent and then like pats his hair so he can finish consuming her yeah and like that's the end of the movie that's the end of the original Nosferatu as well crazy crazy (laughs) it sucks for this book because it's difficult to talk about about vampires without talking about Dracula. Yep. But so much of this text sets up Dracula. There's even the Van Helsing type, the murder of Carmilla, the scene in the church with the trial and the actual process of killing her is exactly like the process of killing Mina's friend. What's her name? Mm-hmm. I don't know. So the lore of the vampires is very much the same as Dracula. Mm-hmm. Like they can move during the daytime. They're just exhausted. The main thing is like they can recoup their powers by sleeping in the, their grave at night in the soil. Carmilla sleeps in seven inches of blood. So that's in her cool. coffin as well. That's a very yeah. good visual. It was. Yeah. The idea of the vampire origin myth comes from a specific like Austrian lady who supposedly bathed in the blood of virgins to be young forever, which is also the main thing in the Brothers Grimm with Heath Ledger and Matt Damon. <laughs> You're talking about um, Elizabeth of Bathory. Yeah. But Elizabeth of Bathory is a English of her name. I don't think it was Austria. I think it was this area that this book is set in. Mm. It's an outstanding visual, just like sleeping in seven inches of 
blood. Yeah, to bathe in blood. Okay, so here's what I want to talk about. I mm. want to talk about why create the vampire mythology the way it is. And of course, this is like a way bigger question because vampires are a monster that have independently generated across cultures mm-hmm. and times repeatedly. So what is it about vampires and the idea of them? And what about them makes them particularly fraught for romance novels? Now, common belief is like, so in horror films, you can understand what's happening culturally in America mm-hmm. by the horror monster that takes precedence. Yeah. Right. And like around the 50s when everyone's coming home from the war and reproducing and then the early 60s, late 50s when those kids are like teens Mm -hmm. and they're in cars and like what are they doing in cars like there's a stigma around sexuality Mm -hmm. and then in the 70s and 80s as well and we start to see like the lost boys Mm -hmm. there was an economics professor who did a pet project about this kind of topic and she took the economic offshoot of it where it's like when americans specifically feel economically distressed or anxiety zombie films take precedence so like that was really clear with the last recession during boom time vampire films of a very specific kind. Lost Boys wouldn't follow this. Vampires represent a kind of feeling of wealth security or like not attainability, but like glitter of a boom time. Well, I think the vampires in The Lost Boys would actually apply there because they're like very sexy and cool. Mm-hmm. They're like the rebel idea of sexy and cool and mm-hmm. there's the stability and like the covenness of it, mm-hmm. right? And they offer stability to the boys whereas like their unstable home life is like the problem. The stability of like living forever with Kiefer Sutherland <laughs> is like... <laughs> Seems right. And that makes sense because as with Carmilla, she's a countess. She is. And uh, later her male ripoff is also a count. Yep. And there is something like outside of Nosferatu, vampires are rarely depicted as like wretched creatures or ugly creatures. They have an ugly side, but it's always <clears> hidden <throat> to me. Well, like, because Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mm-hmm. like, they go into that weird transition mm-hmm. whenever they feed. Mm-hmm. But, like, yeah, like, they're physically beautiful and desirable because they have to attract humans. And they have, like, a certain dependency on a human liking them. Mm-hmm. Like, you have to be invited in. But there's this really reductive idea that vampires and sexuality are entwined because it's about, like, a penetration and an exchange of fluid. I was just also thinking about this and like that also feels reductive to me and not not quite it I think it's like all of the things is it where like where I'm thinking about this I'm still on the economies of vampires where it's like the Marxist view is like part of the reason why vampires also have to be rich is because rich people get away with shit that other people don't get away with Mm -hmm. like they get to commit crimes and that's like already in the zeitgeist of knowing things like the count gets to commit crimes the countess gets to commit crimes and no one's going to hold them accountable so if those crimes are heinous and like murder there's already something built up in the idea of how wealth works that they're gonna get away with it that doesn't really hold up for Carmilla because the Karnstein family is ruined and everyone knows that they're a cause of a vampire problem no one knows that Carmilla has survived this like mass purge you know whenever we meet Dracula like his home is dilapidated but he's like you know, the king of his own fiefdom still. Mm -hmm. I see that argument with Dracula. And actually with Dracula, maybe the problem of that is like, as far as like the Marxist reading goes, Mm -hmm. like whenever you do a Marxist reading of something, you have to think about the materiality and the materiality of Dracula's life is very decayed Mm -hmm. as it is with Carmilla. Mm -hmm. And she's not able to get away with stuff because she's a countess. The thing that he's allowed to get away with is acting like he wants to buy property in England. And I wonder if that's part of it too, where it's like you have these initiated people coming into a space that doesn't belong to them and then they don't know about that makes so much sense for Dracula it doesn't make sense for Carmela but like it does make sense for Carmela because like they aren't of this space like they're very isolated they don't talk to anybody in the town dad is English she doesn't even really speak the language because as we've talked about her governess is like useless but that would be like a problem of not understanding the folklore or the uh, people's culture of mm-hmm. the area as opposed to like understanding like Jonathan gets in trouble because he doesn't understand like oh (laughs) this is not actually how the wealthy live this guy probably isn't that interested in just buying property from me Mm -hmm. right he's Mm -hmm. uninitiated because he's middle class right but 
and Carmilla, they're uninitiated because they're Outsiders. upper class. Right. That's super interesting to me, at least. Because if they had just talked to a woodsman or any <laughs> anyone of their, in the town or like their extensive servant who don't even rank is like how many people are living in this <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. She's like, we have like 50 of them. They don't count. Like if they had just talked to any one of those people, they would have known the deal with the Karnsteins. And it never gets discussed. Like their perspective doesn't matter. And I don't think that's a failing of the book. It works really well for the perspective of our narrator who yeah. I doubt would be noticing like if the staff at her home was like, we're going to leave. We're quitting because Marcella Karnstein is here. <laughs> yeah, they, you know? yeah, she would have been like, that's odd. My sheets weren't changed this morning. Like she wouldn't have noticed. So there is that duality. That's really interesting though. That draws out like an interesting point of of Carmilla versus Dracula. I also think the idea that like Dracula is, I mean, masquerading for lack of a better term as like a wealthy person of influence, but then like Carmilla's lure is that she's a young woman of influence, but like is a damsel in distress. Yeah. And like that distress like needs to be ameliorated. And the way that she like applies to Laura's dad at times is always really weird. One of the anxieties of this text is like how young women like play older chaps. When I was reading The General and Laura's father, I read them as two men who were very much like, I'm such a good dad. Yeah. I'm like a very good daddy. I'm the best. I'm a good daddy. I'm a good old daddy. Yep. And I can good daddy this hot language. Who is not related to me. Yeah. 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 And there's all these scenes. And I I think the text wants us to understand the interest in Marcella of these daddies as lascivious. Yes. Because her father always like randomly touches Carmilla's hand and comments on how pretty she is. Right. And he's like, I wish, you know, Laura was as pretty as you. Yeah. That's an insane thing to say in front of your kid. It's a weird thing to say that you wish your kid was <laughs> as pretty as her best friend. Yeah, yeah that's, that's weird. That's weird. But, you know, when Dracula comes and he's courting Mina, mm-hmm. he does so as like person in distress. But at every turn, he's demonstrating his authority. Like, I'm not really in distress. Whereas I think you're right. She is trading in the coin of the realm. Mm-hmm. Which was then fascinating to see her then described at the very end as fiend when the general's like trying to kill her with his sword. And it's like her very little white wrist yeah. like holds up the whole sword and oh makes his arm go numb. It's so weird. They talk about like ways you can tell a vampire. Hand strength. <laughs> So true, though. It's like notice how her hand is strong. He will probably be numb for weeks. He may may never recover. Definitely for weeks, though. Yeah, hand strength. Hand strength. Somebody shakes your hand too hard. Vampire. Vampire. Hand strength. Hand strength. Weak ankles. Mm. Push them over (laughs) with a strong breeze. They don't like to wake before four. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty late in the afternoon. That was my other favorite thing. The general was like recounting. Like, I mean, she slept in pretty late. Uh, she missed breakfast and lunch. I, like, yeah, the qualifier was pretty. She slept in pretty late. It wasn't crazy, but it was pretty late. Yeah. But in all of this, right, the book, and I'm not sure if this part is intentional or not, but that piece I read is really about the power imbalance between Carmilla and Laura. Mm -hmm. And is really about like that playing out. You know, it doesn't really talk about like Laura's interest in Carmilla that much besides to be like, ooh. And then whenever we get her feelings, they're always bad feelings. It's bad affect. But there's also like, she describes feeling drawn inexplicably. That's the closest we get to like her acknowledging like, a feeling of desire or attraction or even like something skirting positivity for Carmilla. There's this weird thought experiment that Laura performs early on when she's like trying to figure out why her bad feeling of attraction continues, why she's orbiting this thought so much. And she's like, well, there are stories where like boys, very pretty boys would dress up as girls and then hang out and be your companion. And that's how they would woo you to like get in 
past your dad. And then she's like, but Carmilla was way too much of a woman for that. Yeah, that's the that's the chapter that has the a saunter. Right. And it's like, what an interesting thought. And she's like, but then the other part of it is immediately self-deprecating where she's like, I hadn't garnered that kind of attention from boys. There's this thing where when I started reading it, I was like, ooh, I wonder if I'll be able to piece together the lesbian stuff how deep <laughs> how deep of a read it'll be but you and I haven't really talked about it that much because it's so there yeah it's not deep it's always there yeah I mean like they don't have sex or anything no they don't kiss on the mouth there's a lot of heavy petting and I'm not sure that they don't kiss on the mouth that is something that I choose to read into it where she's like she was kissing my cheek and then kissing me more yeah like that seems to me like kissing on the mouth yeah yeah so that's a heavy petting yeah I mean it's 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 all there on the surface. It doesn't require a deep read. And that's one of the other reasons it's so interesting. I mean, it makes a lot of sense why this book wasn't more popular or important. I found it to be a zestier read than Dracula. Like it went faster. It was punchier. The prose was clearer and cleaner. It has broad appeal though, which I think could have worked against it. I haven't read like a lot of reception studies of this or Dracula. But the other thing I thought was interesting was Dracula really talks about all sorts of violence Mm -hmm. and all sorts of sexuality Mm -hmm. in a really profane way Mm -hmm. whereas like the sexuality in this book you get like a deeper read of it Mm -hmm. and its meanings and its exchanges and its undercurrents Mm -hmm. and its overcurrents and you don't get a lot of visuals of violence beyond the fact that she's when they open the coffin she's in seven inches of blood or one night our heroine Laura wakes up from a dream where she just heard a voice whisper your mother says to beware the assassin and she wakes up and she sees Carmela in a white night gown with blood running from her bottom lip to the floor and I was like whoa like there are these great punchy moments of visual terror but unlike Dracula it's not really sensationalist no and the tone isn't omnipresent like there are tones in this that are like actually quite tender and I think you're right to bring up the fact that there's a real lack of violence there's just a lot of like ambiguity which I think is really interesting and one of the things that was most interesting to me is the fact that we're with these two teenagers like on the brink of womanhood and that's brought up a lot and like the sexual anxiety of like loss of innocence and like this like waning away especially as it pertains to Laura when she's being fed on for these weeks it also begins to feel like the first several weeks of pregnancy where it's like your wane her hair is down the way that people talk about not having your body hurt but just being tired all the time and then the general's letter read to me is like I didn't watch her close enough how could I have let this thing in right right which then had this real sexual read. Yeah. I feel like Carmilla is intentionally sexual. Yeah. And that like the anxieties of this text are intensely sexual, but also like strangely tender and like careful about investigating that work. And it's like the dad's anxieties aside, because like those we can read as like societal or patriarchal anxieties. Laura's anxiety about her attraction is really interesting and like given full time. But we're also told Laura is deeply isolated. Totally. She's got literally no one. She's got two governesses. She's 19 in the texts moment. That's not good news. Like her father's keeping her in this schloss. She's not going to have a coming out. No. With like these two governesses. One is her finishing governess who's really just there to hook up with her father. It's a bad isolating scene that she doesn't have any control over. It does seem like a 19th century male perspective on like, how does one become a lesbian? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Which like acknowledges some of like the ways in which women are tortured and like the slow torture of isolation like the fact that like there's never a scene of her with like books or like anything from the real outside and like her Mm. dad's not even attempting that no they speak English to each other so that they don't lose the language in the household which is crazy because no one else in the household would understand them it's like having twins speak with your dad but yeah I don't think the book acknowledges its silliness it really sets up Laura to be like forced into this relationship Mm -hmm. with Carmilla and Carmilla is in her mortal life described as like lascivious having many lovers Mm -hmm. you know so I don't think the text is particularly sympathetic to lesbianism no but the text in general 
has a way of reading human sexuality as something that is nuanced and subconscious Mm -hmm. (laughs) in many ways. Not a choice, but a drive. Mm -hmm. The other thing I wanted to draw out about what you just said was ambiguity. Mm -hmm. Because I think the ambiguity is what made gothic novels the quintessential romance text Mm -hmm. before we got between Austen and Woodowis. Because that ambiguity allows for mystery and thrill that doesn't have to do with like physical contact. Yeah. So ambiguity allows for that. But ambiguity also allows for the heroine doesn't have to be horny. Mm-hmm. Like you and I read Carmilla and we're like, Laura's horny as fuck. Mm-hmm. And I think when Carmilla was written, it was written as like, Laura's very horny. Mm-hmm. But because we're getting it from her perspective alone and only what she wants to share with this mm-hmm. very specific audience, it creates even more ambiguity so we can still relate to the heroine without feeling like she's a morally bad person mm-hmm. because we don't want to connect with those characters. No, we don't. So the ambiguity allows that to happen. And I think having any desire that was sexual and not like pure and marital, right, mm-hmm. was bad. Mm-hmm. And so gothic romance allowed women to be desirous of something that wasn't sexual. And mm-hmm. I think we see that with Laura, right? Because she's like, oh, I'm just drawn. It's just like Carmilla doesn't do it as well because Carmilla has a female hero. Marriage is not a possible ending for them. Right. And like Carmilla's explicit. She uses the terminology that I would say that like romance novels traffic in. She's like, I love you ardently. I like want to be you. You are me. Like she uses these massive declarations. And like there are some times that Laura feels both really flattered and like, oh, and other times where she's like, "Mm, that's a little much for me. And I think like the space of that where it's like her desire to be wanted Mm -hmm. and her desire to have kinship and her desire to be close and companionship and also sexuality. There's just such a broad canvas that her curiosity is allowed to run. And since we're so deeply in her perspective, like watching her gnaw on it was Mm -hmm. like a pleasurable experience. And like we know from like the outset that Carmilla is a fucking monster. Yeah. That's so clear. She's not the title character without being like the bad. Yeah. Like, you know it immediately. So then watching through the lens of like Laura's remembrances of like her gnawing on like this desire is fun. It is. And I would say there's also something pleasurable in the fact that the book comes to be critical of this particular idea of romance. Like Mm -hmm. this obsession, this liking to be liked is not love. That's not how the world works. In fact, that's like what being consumed is. Yeah, that's murder. Yeah. Which a romance novel would never acquiesce to that idea. certainly not. (laughs) You're not sleeping in seven inches of the blood of your love. No. Spookiest part. Spookiest part! (laughs) That first scene when she's a little girl and she wakes up and she slowly sees a pale face materialize in the corner and you're so scared for her and she gives this explanation as to why she didn't know to be scared and I remember the first time I like started having nightmares I was like I longed for that. I had really bad nightmares as a kid but I longed for that feeling and like knowing that and knowing that she's about to lose it and just like the way the book very sparsely but effectively describes how Carmilla moves. That was the spookiest part for me. Can I read a bit of it? Okay. Can I use your book? Yeah, of course. It's called An Early Fright Mm -hmm. is the chapter. These chapter titles, I tell you listeners. Okay. Some people will think it's so trifling that it should not be recorded here. You will see, however, by and by why I mention it. The nursery, as it was called, though I had it all to myself, was a large room in the upper story of the castle with a steep oak roof. I can't have been more than six years old when one night I awoke and looking around the room from my bed, failed to see the nursery maid. Neither was my nurse there, and I thought myself alone. I was not frightened, for I was one of those happy children who are studiously kept in ignorance of ghost stories, of fairy tales, and of all such lore as make us cover up our heads when the door cracks suddenly, or the flicker of an expiring candle makes the shadow of a bedpost dance upon the wall nearer to our faces. I was vexed and insulted at finding myself, as I conceived, neglected, and I began to whimper, 
preparatory to a hearty bout of roaring, when, to my surprise, I saw a solemn but very pretty face looking at me from the side of the bed. It was that of a young lady who was kneeling with her hands under the coverlet. I looked at her with a kind of pleased wonder and ceased whimpering. She caressed me with her hands and lay down beside me on the bed and drew me towards her, smiling. I felt immediately delightfully soothed and fell asleep again. I was wakened by a sensation as if two needles ran into my breast very deep at the same moment and I cried loudly. The lady started back with her eyes fixed on me and then slipped down upon the floor and I, as I thought, hid herself under the bed. Yeah, that feeling of like, once you're in the bed, like you can't let your hand get onto the edge because like the monster that lives under there is going to get Under there. Yeah, she goes under the The bed bed. and then like... like, You'll never be safe again, Laura. (laughs) Exactly. And like whenever Carmilla is re-remembering this, she's Mm -hmm. like, I had a dream where like you screamed at me and then I fell off and I went under your bed and then I woke up in my normal bed. And it's like, why would you go under the bed? (laughs) Because you're a monster. Because you're bad. Yeah, dude. That's a creepy part. And like they describe everybody looking for the monster afterwards and being very fearful. Because why would this little girl make this up? Mm -hmm. And I do think there's enough ambiguity in the text that aside from like the final movements, you can almost read it as we have an unreliable narrator. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is all allegory. Mm -hmm. And it feels so on the nose Mm -hmm. at times. And that's almost more frightening. Like the fact that this first moment of fear that is shared with us, inventing that kind of terror for yourself. Yeah, like a beautiful companion because you're lonely and feel neglected. And then she hurts you physically. What was your spookiest part? That's a really spooky part. For me, that moment when the peddler, who's also a hunchback, (gasps) shows up. Oh, we haven't talked about that. And he's already like this creature of sort of like mysticism. And like, but they are repulsed by him because he's this Mont Blanc and like blah, blah, blah. None of that's great. And then he's like, you know, I've got these baubles for you. I've got this, that and the other thing. And then he like looks straight at Carmilla with like his like special eye and he's like I have a file for your very long needle tooth and she just like loses her shit and it's like that moment where it's like you're so deeply in Laura's perspective and then like Carmilla is this beautiful awesome person that you love hanging out with and then like you see her through someone's like true sight it felt like I was turning my head with Laura and like could see the tooth and I was like holy shit you're a vampire yeah so he comes up and he's talking to the two girls through the window right, as well. And he says, I have a charm that you can pin to your pillow. Because the people in the village are saying, oop here. And Laura doesn't know that that's the same thing as a vampire. And she's like, that's an illness they're calling oop here. Um, and he's like, that will keep the oop here away. And they both buy the little charm that they can pin. And then he says that about her teeth. Yeah, and later on, everything gets called back in this mm. very short book. But there's a callback. Laura has a dream of a giant monstrous cat pacing at the foot of her bed and when she wakes up she screams and she goes and she tells Carmilla about it and Carmilla says well I sleep with the charm pinned to my pillow don't you and so Laura pins the charm to her pillow she's like I slept so much better after that and it's like it shows her actual powerlessness Mm -hmm. and how much she is trying to ignore her fear right and that allows the monster to continue to feed which is just like Oprah told us the trust gift fear. the gift of fear I trust was, your fear I knew I was going for Harpo marks over there it's just like <laughs> the gift of fear oh my god you're the, so right for bringing that up she's just fear. ignoring it at the every gift of fear. somebody sniffing your underwear the gift of fear yeah dude and this book is like rife with it it's like I'm actually getting goosebumps thinking about that but like, also the fact that the monster herself instructs her on totally. how to lose the fear and it's just pinning a charm to your pillow yeah it's also like being gaslit you yeah know? I'm just like, boy, everything about it. And so one of the other things that I really loved about this is when they finally get into Carmilla's grave, 
there's like this amazing like Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet, you know, catacomb. I so imagine Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, they're all on shelves. They've got this like beautiful tomb. I'm like, it's like that. And then like she's in this beautiful car, basically sarcophagus and floating in the blood. And she looks so beautiful. And it felt so much like Edgar Allan Poe where it's like she still has the red cheek. She's still so pale and lovely after 150 years. Floating on seven inches of blood. And I was like, I will remember that for a long time. Like that image is so good. And it was so, so good. Perfectly executed. Like it wasn't in the sense that I was spooked, but I was like, this is a beautiful tableau. Because at the moment, like men had started their saunter and they're like, we're going to take care of this. And then they open the coffin and it's hilarious because they have to like, now we must commit the three trials of the vampire before we desecrate a corpse. (laughs) Right. Because desecrating a corpse is a mortal sin. Yeah. And then they go through all of this and they're like, how did you know? And he's like, my great uncle was the one who turned her into a vampire. So this guy kills himself, is a vampire, makes her a vampire, and then has the nerve to be like, I realized what a mistake I made. So I mapped out where her tomb is. So you can get her. Yeah. Like what a dick. Yeah. He a bad dude. Male chauvinism Mm. knows no bounds. Just let her be a fucking vampire. No. Yeah. Cry me a river. I know. No shit. This is a beautiful young... And her soft, soft breathing. And her soft, soft hair and her, you know, rosy cheeks. Like, it felt Chest, like... Dark chestnut hair, a yeah. mole on her neck. It felt like Juliet in the tomb. That's an image. Sexiest part. All their walks together in, like, the late afternoon twilight when they're, like, arm in arm and, like, Carmilla's, like, snorgling into (laughs) Laura as hard as she can. Yeah. Like, there was just so much, like, absolutely intense cuddling. Yeah. And it's so sensual. Like, her breasts are breathing so heavily against the linen of her shift and stuff like that. And I was like, that's sexy. Yeah. Do you want to read a passage, perhaps? Sure, let me see. Because it is a sexy book. Welcome to Womance, where we bring you certified sexy books. Not that this is particularly sexy, but... Carmilla became more devoted to me than ever, and her strange paroxysms of languid adoration more frequent. She used to gloat on me with increasing adder the more my strengths and spirits waned. This always shocked me like a momentary glare of insanity. So Carmilla is talking to Laura, and she talks about the cruel strange love that changed her life forever, but she can't go into it. Love will have its sacrifices. No sacrifice without blood. She says, I feel so lazy. How can I get up just now and lock my door? She was lying with her tiny hands buried in her rich wavy hair under her cheek. Her little head upon the pillow and her glittering eyes followed me wherever I moved with a kind of shy smile I could not decipher. I bid her good night and crept from the room with an uncomfortable sensation. She had spoken such a rhapsody to me. She would press me more closely in her trembling embrace and her lips and soft kisses gently glow upon my cheek. In these mysterious moods, I did not like her. I experienced a strange tumultuous excitement that was pleasurable ever and anon mingled with a vague sense of fear and disgust. I had no distinct thoughts about her while such senses lasted, but I was conscious of a love growing into adoration and also of abhorrence. This I know is paradox, but I can make no other attempt to explain the feeling. It's true. It's so good. It's so good, listeners. I love this piece of text. I just want to read it. But dreams come through stone walls, light up dark rooms or darken light ones, and their persons make their exits and their entrances as they please and laugh at locksmiths. <sighs> it's so good. I wonder whether you feel as strangely drawn towards me as I do to you. I've never had a friend. Shall I find one now? She sighed and her dark eyes gazed passionately on me. Ah. Oh. Yeah, it's real good. Here's something nice. Why does your papa like to frighten us, said the pretty girl with a sigh and a little shudder. He doesn't, dear Carmilla. It is the very furthest thing from his mind. (laughs) Are you afraid, dearest? I should be very much if I fancied there was any real danger of my being attacked as those poor people were. You are afraid to die? Yes, everyone is. But to die as lovers may. To die together so that they may live together. Girls are caterpillars while they live in the world. (laughs) To be finely butterflies when the summer comes. But in the meantime, there are grubs and larvae. Don't you see? Each with their particular propensities, necessities, and structures. So says Monsieur Buffon in his big book in the next room. Oh, it's so 
dirty. Mr. Buffon is big book in the next room. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> that is really good. <sighs> weirdest part. You know what? My weirdest part is this weird human frau who <laughs> is like part of the long con of Carmilla. How did she get there? Who are her footmen who are also <laughs> part of the con? Did you see those dirty old footmen? They're also very sharp and strange looking and dirty slash potentially brown. Not sure. It's always dark. Like, yeah. What the fuck? That is definitely the setup. Is the my black weirdest. woman with the grimace and the yeah. carriage? Yeah. Yeah. Who the fuck is that? <laughs> I want more Carmilla information. Yeah, like, how did she come upon her traveling cavalcade? Her coterie. Yeah, her fucking what? They're henchmen, but not. And like, how did they come to be? How did she acquire them? How do they know to come back in three months? Like, (laughs) they don't have cell phones. So there's this stuff, like, there's weird daddy stuff. Mm. There's the classism of like, I don't know what the poors are talking about. Needle sharp teeth, you know. Yeah, like, it's a weird envisioning of vampire. Like they felt like the teeth were really close together. The needle. I think about that a lot. It's like rabbit teeth. Well, do you than... know what I think about? I think about fishing line, mm, mm-hmm. where you only see it when it glitters. Mm-hmm. But I think the book is conscientious of all that weird stuff and putting that weird stuff there to be like, look, you know, like, Wah! some weird shit is happening. Yeah, exactly. The weirdest part for me in that case was three months. <laughs> yeah, everything is on a three month cycle. It is. it is a quarterly cycle, mm-hmm. not unlike a sales cycle. I don't know why everyone's giving themselves a three-month deadline. It is a very weird turnaround. 90 days is not a lot of days. What happens in 90 days? Like, physically. Like, in my head, I'm like, I'm gonna write a lesbian vampire story. Stuff's gonna happen in 28 days or a nine-month cycle. Like, it's all gonna be, like, very lunar. Right. Which is why the 90 days for me felt like the first trimester of a pregnancy. Or I'm gonna write, you know, a uh, a sexy book. I'm going to make it all about the solar cycle, you know. 90 days like the first trimester of a pregnancy. I don't know. I don't I don't uh It's fine. I mean, that's how I read the general's letter about his ward slash daughter slash like obvious love. That he was going to go look for her for 90 days. Oh, if I don't find her in 90 days, I'll be back. No, cuz she was already dead. He was going to go find the fiend in 90 Right, days. right, right. But like why give yourself a 90 day deadline? I have literally fucking no idea. Exactly. It's very weird. It's so and then weird. and then her like governess being like, I'm gonna whisper, I'm gonna close talk to you about the fact that I'm gonna be gone for ninety days and she's not gonna tell you anything about it. So I don't even know why you would bother asking, but she's not going to, so just be prepared for that fact. And I'll see you in three months. She's like very secret, very important, very secret, ninety days. <laughs> Whatever you're doing in ninety days. What like, is ninety days? What are you doing in ninety days? What is the significance of ninety days? Uh, is that how far you can travel in six weeks and then come back? Is it? I don't know because like they're also <laughs> traveling a made by up carriage. place. <laughs> it's like they're going to Berlin. I don't know. Also, why is it a made up place? I don't know. He was like, I don't want to incur the wrath of anyone who's like, Hey, I'm from there. We don't have a vampire. Hey, this guy's making stuff up about my hometown. I also love that you can like just buy a schloss and that like <laughs> fucking people are doing it. And, like, just when say they- a schloss. A schloss. A schloss has come up recently and my dad wrote a porno. <laughs> That's hilarious. But like when the general shows up and he's like all beleaguered and whatever and he's like, I hope that you've come to buy the neighboring schloss that was definitely haunted. And like to buy the patents and like the name. Which schloss are you getting? Welcome to my <laughs> schloss. I assume you're here to buy another schloss. Are you, getting the, the road. are you getting the haunted schloss or the nice schloss? <laughs> like what's your Which budget? Which schloss are you uh, looking for? Flip or flop. What's your schloss must have? <laughs> <laughs> a tomb and a shield, like a family crest you can purchase. I would like my schloss to be surrounded by grassy banks. I would like a steep oak roof. I would like 25 rooms on the second floor. I want a sylvan forest and a peasant village not too far away. But still pretty far away. So no one thinks it's weird that I just live with my adult daughter and don't introduce her to anyone. Okay. Haunted schloss probably isn't for you. There's a woodsman who's always around there and has all the hot goss. I'm going to recommend fresh schloss. 
It's got the Stico proof you want. <laughs> Plenty of room for your dead wife's restored paintings <laughs> in 20 years after her death and your marriage. Put those up. It'll be real nice. It's worth your money. You know, it's going to be a return on investment when Germany finally becomes a country. And there's also this idea of like how they spent their time. Oh my God. Yeah. Playing cards with your governesses. I kind of liked her relationship with her dad because they felt friendly. Yeah, they were very friendly. And gossipy. Mm-hmm. I think he kept her isolated because he didn't want her to know that they were poors. Yeah, he's like, honey, we're nobility. Our money goes so far here. We're doing it because it's a smart investment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I won't take you into London because London's dirty and expensive. Well, in the year after her attack, he takes her to Italy, mm-hmm. which I assume wasn't cheap. I mean, it's northern Italy. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> you didn't Never mind. Like, the Amalfi Coast. The Detroit of Europe. <laughs> northern Italy. I really, really liked this book. To be honest, it's a nomance. It's in no way a romance novel. No, it's not. You should read it, though. But you should read it. It's so good. It's so good. But let me give you some advice. (laughs) Should you be a Kindle purchaser? There are a lot of versions of this book that retail for upwards of three U.S. dollars that are obviously versions that have been run from a Google Translate service to return them to English because this book was originally in English. I read the phrase, the solar had risen. (laughs) She turned into, into turning into me. (laughs) I had to go through three different (laughs) versions before I found an actual one. Buyer beware. Buyer beware when it comes to Carmilla. That's what happens when late grades never get their due. Buyer beware. You know what sucks? It feels so like dime store feminist of me. But the reason this book isn't a bigger deal than Dracula is because it's about a relationship between two women. Yep. And two young women at that. Yeah. And like overall, like his and how of a perspective is better than Bram Stoker's. Bram Stoker is like different people writing letters. Yeah, right. It's the same person writing mm-hmm. <laughs> like, compared to like the full, rich, funny, scary mm-hmm. way that La Fano inhabits Laura's perspective. Wow, it's good. It's so good. And it's so short. It's so short. And it'll give you the creeps. Yeah, it's a good boo. Real quick, Mm. what's your favorite way to scare yourself on Halloween? Well, listeners, Morgan. Yes. I... I love thinking myself the willies. I also love giving myself the willies, except I am highly susceptible... to the fear part of my brain. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if we talked about this You're last very time. sensitive. I'm so sensitive. <laughs> like, I don't know if we talked about it, but like in the never ending story, when the nothing manifests as the wolf at the very end. Oh, it's so scary. I couldn't shower with the door closed or the curtain shut for three months because I was afraid. <laughs> three nothing, months. Three months. Because I was terrified that the nothing would come out of the cupboard or like in the door when I was alone. So like as the youngest of four children, all of my older siblings just like had to deal with like fucking water all over the floor and like steam escaping the bathroom, which was great, I That's... guess, for like humidity in the winter. But like I like even thinking about it now, I'm like I'm getting the willies. I'm like, so the best scare for me is like the village. I understand what happens <laughs> at the end. <laughs> How embarrassing for you to admit on this podcast. I don't think it's embarrassing. That soundtrack is really good. Oh my God, you are the biggest fucking nerd. I know what you're thinking. The Village isn't a good movie and it's definitely not scary, but... The soundtrack is very good. I wrote half of my thesis to that soundtrack. Yeah, I'm highly susceptible. I like thrillers, so like ghost stories are great. I loved The Haunting of Hill House, but I had to watch it with at least four lights on. (gasps) I was thinking about the big, tall, scary guy who floats. Yeah, yeah, I think about him like in odd moments at 2 o'clock p.m. when I'm standing on a platform going to a train. I'm just like, he comes out of my peripheral vision and I am in a cold sweat for 15 minutes. Like, I've been thinking about The Haunting of Hill House, which the TV show adaptation, actually good. every adaptation, very good, very different from the book, but really does that thing where it captures like the essence, like the central problem of the book, which is like being responsible for other people.
people is scary. Mm-hmm. And I think what's brilliant about the TV show is it was like being a part of a family, you're responsible for other people. Yeah. Yeah. The Haunting of Hill House like really keyed into that central great anxiety, which is being responsible for others. And I will say the scariest scene in The Haunting of Hill House for me was when the twin sister is taking her brother to rehab and he wants to score one last time and nothing supernatural happens. She's just sitting in the car waiting for him to buy heroin in the rain. And the whole time my head was just like white hot screaming. That's what it's like. Not knowing if you're making the right choice. Not knowing if you're hurting someone. Not knowing if you're actually not responsible for them because the oldest brother is like, this is not my fucking problem. Yeah, I've done enough. I've done enough. There's nothing else for me to do. This isn't actually my responsibility. You know, it's so good. It is so good. If you are like Isabeau and highly sensitive, I recommend having a fun fur baby to help you through it. And or a glass of wine and like an ability. I couldn't watch more than two episodes a night and I watch scary stuff. You know what I did? It is that scary. It is that scary. And so what I did is like I maxed myself out. So I like watched four episodes. It was two o'clock in the morning and I'm like, I'm going to wait for the sun to come up now because I can't do anything (laughs) else. If I go to bed, I'm definitely going to die. That thumping. Oh my God. It builds the boo. And like anything that builds a boo is like really tough. And like the thing is like it does a couple like jump scares. Yeah. a couple. Mm-mm, it's but not very everything many. scares you as much as a jump scare. Yeah. Not the least of which is like how to fucking deal with your family. Yeah. Is Haunting that? of Hill House is very scary. Did you watch the second season of Sabrina? Oh, no. I didn't finish the first season. Sabrina the series was just really invested in like patriarchy. It was invested in patriarchy, but it was like, so Sabrina in the graphic novel, she casts a love spell. And so there's absolutely no consent between her and the guy. And then she brings him back from the dead. She's making teen girl choices. She's a bad person. And I feel like this series was so titchy about making her like a complex character. I was really frustrated by it. So I didn't get past episode three. Oh, wow. I watched both series. It gets worse <laughs> not better although I will say that like the soundtrack and this booze remain pretty good and her aunt her first name is Miranda I think it's Miranda Otto she was in Lord of the Rings I love the aunts in the series and mm-hmm. the TV show Salem is also kind of a bummer in the TV show compared mm-hmm. to the comic book so is her cousin who I think is just like a chill cool guy in the TV show <laughs> in the graphic novels is uh I can't remember he used his powers in such maybe love spells he cast too many love spells so the devil was like, you're out of the coven. You're under house arrest. I will say that the experience of the devil in Sabrina is actually terrifying. But as someone who doesn't believe in hell or heaven, depictions of the devil are always really interesting to me. And like the devil is yeah. a character. So then when they had this character, Nick Scratch, I was like, oh, that's a manifestation of the devil. No. It's one of the devil's names. And I was like, no, he's just a kid. Yeah, he's just a guy. I was like, well, that's boring. Like, why is the devil really a goat in this? And like, why is he so obsessed with like fucking up Lilith? Like, that seems crazy and also Lilith isn't nearly as like heinous as she is like whenever she appears in the graphic the graphic novel the book's better than the movie (laughs) what I'm trying to say but yeah Sabrina the the graphic novel is really fun and uh deals with character ambiguity in a way more interesting and fruitful way than the tv show does the tv show feels almost like it has a pedagogy where it's like it does this is how to be a good teenager. This is um, how to be a good woman in a world that doesn't want you to be powerful but this is how you overthrow the patriarchy. Exactly and I think the graphic novel is very like when you're a teen girl you're going to want to kiss a specific boy and if you had the power to make him kiss you wouldn't you do it? Yeah you would do it and then you would be like oh shit he's dead now how do I make it up? You're going to make another bad rash decision because you're a teenager. It's way more about like the evils of teens than <laughs> it is like. Your brain isn't fully formed. Yeah exactly like you're going to fuck up all the time. And that's the thing. Like Sabrina is just constantly screwing the pooch in these really Baroque ways. And then you realize all of the adults around her, including Satan, are doing the same thing. Like everyone's just trying their best and failing. Yeah, 2019. (laughs) Except Satan, unlike our president, I think is actually trying his best and failing. I think our president is just like, I'm fine. Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor. (laughs) (laughs) Everything feels so silly. Everything feels so silly. 
It's like I say things that aren't satire that weren't satire a decade ago and now they are literally satire. America's mayor has gone to the Ukraine to try and illegally buy favors from oligarchs on the weird perv congressman Joe Biden. From Delaware. From Delaware. I don't even know what to do. I don't. Because his son, which by the way, can we talk about the fact that Joe Biden's son is named Hunter Biden and he makes more money than me? Anybody named Hunter. Someone named Hunter is making more money than you right now. I bet there are at least seven hunters making more money than me right now you know and it's, it's probably more than seven yeah hunter biden what the fuck hunter. and then everybody's freaking out about 50 my mom would have month. named me hunter if i was born a boy oh thank god you're a morgan no offense to your mom i just don't think that like first names should be jobs you know like like i had a crush on this guy named cooper and then i found out I that cooper was a job and i, I was like cooper Coop. Coop. i get it but it's like your first name's a job you're There's barrel cooper carpenter yeah <laughs> That's not a first Woodsman. Name. Woodsman. We're just making a veterinarian. I guess that's better than like naming them after things. I knew this kid in school named Remington. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. We all wow. just called him JR because he was a junior. I guess we should wrap this up. Loosen your stays. Whenever your principles. Mwah. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. All editing and music is done by Nick Gravelin. Our logo is by Mary Reichman. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. Feeling woeful about having to wait a whole week for more Womance? Well, cheer up, Buttercup. You can creep or connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or our website. Our webpage is womancepod.com. If you prefer to be more verbose and or direct, why not send us an email? We're womancemail at gmail.com, and we can't wait to hear from you. In the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast listening app. Until next week. Womance is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.